The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good to be with everybody today. Thanks for coming, especially those of you who've walked into the room for the first time. Appreciate that. You know, it's not easy showing up, whether you're on Zoom or here in person. And just a reminder to everyone that we do, I do record on Sunday morning, and so the program is always available on our YouTube channel uh, to watch in real time on Sunday mornings, but also any time later, the video of the morning program is there on our YouTube channel. And the audio is always available on dharmacy.org. So both the video and the audio you can get whenever you want down the road. So I'm finishing up a series of talks. This is week three. You can hear the first two if you want. Um, On the liberating potential of wisdom and awareness. And, you know, I've always begun with this, I guess, sort of joke. Like, what is the big deal about awareness? And uh, why do people find, like the Buddha and all those people who maybe consider themselves students of the Buddhist teachings, why do they make such a big deal about present moment awareness? Does it actually have some kind of liberating effect on our mind? And, and of course, the appropriate thing is to want to check it out, <laughs> because then you'll know for yourself. It won't, you won't be dependent on someone selling you a bill of goods. This is the ticket. There's a a well-known phrase in the tradition, ehi pasiko, come and check it out. Come and see for yourself. Nobody can do it for us. We have to check it out for ourselves. And it relates to how wisdom works and the way the Buddha described, you know, we, you know, as long as we just kind of continue on our own in life, we tend to be imprisoned by our ideas, like how we conceive of things. And generally, those people around us, like our friends and family, they have similar ideas, our culture, right? So we're all sort of imprisoned by the way we tend to look and think about things. And then if we're fortunate, we come around, we get in touch with some ideas, some teachings that don't really align with what I think. And the idea is we need to do three things. We need to hear something that's out of the box. Otherwise, we're trapped by our box, right? By the way our culture and our mind kind of understands So we have to hear something out of the box, and then we have to hear it enough, clearly enough, often enough, so that we, in a sense, own that information. It's still on the level of concept, but it's interesting concept because it doesn't really align with how I understand. And then we use that information now that I own because I can, you know, regurgitate it, and I can, in a sense, use it to try to relate to my experience with the new information instead of relating to the present moment 
in the habitual ways that I've been relating to the present moment, to my, you know, understanding that was conditioned by culture, right? So we have this understanding we have about our lives, about our experience, about each other, and that understanding generally has been conditioned by culture. And, you know, other conditioning forces like genetics and whatever else. And then if we bump into some, let's say, radical new way of relating, understanding, we hear it. It only can be conveyed through language. I mean, generally speaking, that's how we get new perspectives. We get interested enough to really listen carefully so we can use it. And then that sets up the third part, which is insight, where our understanding, our way of relating shifts. And that's called in this tradition, Vipassana or insight. And it's always a sudden and surprising shift because it isn't like me thinking through things and then creatively coming up with a different way of understanding. It isn't a cognitive process. The cognitive process is to keep the new frame in mind as a concept until our understanding shifts and something gets, you could say, internalized that changes the way the mind going forward relates or understands. Generally, that process of awakening or Deepening of insight is gradual, but, you know, it's different for different people, how it all plays out. So those are the three parts. We need new information. We need to memorize and own and integrate that new information so we can practice with it. And then that sets up insight. And those three things working together we call wisdom. Wisdom is this process of being exposed to new ways of understanding integrating those new ways of understanding until you become a different person, right? Your understanding, your way of relating has shifted and in a way that's no way going back because your mind going forward, you know, the mind isn't a thing. The mind is a unfolding process. It's like sometimes in later Buddhist traditions, sometimes they'd refer to it as a mind stream because it's a little bit more accurate, more descriptive of what it means to have a mind. We wrongly presume like there's me, there's my mind, there's my heart, but it isn't a, like a fixed edifice me, right? It's a natural dynamic of unfolding, a natural process unfolding. And that natural process unfolding is gonna be unfolding according to habit until something shifts habit, right? And that process of habit getting transformed, we call insight. And what supports insight is a way of being, a way of being present that's different than the usual way of being present. Normally we're present, but only being present is always mediated by our fixed ideas about what this is, who I am, what's happening to me right now. But now with new information, then that way of being, that way of understanding can shift, can get transformed. 
And this is all done with this wisdom and awareness that we cultivate in our practice. We're practicing bringing this new information, wisdom, the ideas from the Buddha and from other wise people to bear on how we're being present with our experience. So, you know, as I finish up this series of talks, uh, I'm going to be going to teach uh, in Massachusetts at the Forest Refuge at Insight Meditation Society right there in the middle of Massachusetts, in Barrie, Massachusetts, for the next month. I'll come and teach online, and there'll be a screen here. But next Sunday, uh, Kyoko Karayama will be teaching here in person and online. But the next three Sundays in November, I'll be here, but I'll be here on a screen. For those of you who are live, the room still will be open. Kids' programs will happen every other week like we normally do. And for those of you on Zoom, it will be like it normally is. And on the YouTube channel, it will be like it normally is, recorded there. Um, but so I'm finishing up this series of talks, and I want to just review some of the underlying principles of our basic practice of wisdom and awareness. And the, the first thing is this, what we call wise view. And um, <laughs> one of my important teachers, Saida Utejaniya, you know, he says in terms of wise view, and in fact, in terms of a whole practice, he'll say something like, he repeats this quite often, when he's meeting with uh, students. You know, your responsibilities are threefold. It's not complicated. Your first responsibility is to know what wise view is, what wisdom is, right? Just even on an intellectual level, like to get it, on just to kind of get that transmission. Oh, so that's what wise view is, I'll get there. And then your second instruction, your second thing you have to do is you have to remember wise view. And the third thing is you got to keep remembering wise view. <laughs> and the reason he says that, besides being funny, is it, uh, it really aligns, you know, the Buddha's path, it, it isn't intellectually demanding, although, you know, the more subtle aspects, if you learn it as a system, the philosophy, kind of a system of psychology, it's quite refined, can be quite refined. But as a practice, it's really simple. Not easy, but it's really simple. It's not complicated. And it really, it's, it's about hearing something, remembering it, and keep remembering it. Because not just when we're sitting, but all day long, we want to remember so we can practice relating with wise view. So what do we mean? What does the Buddha mean by wise view? Well, wrong view, ignorance, the habit view, is we're experiencing what's happening in the present moment, but it's being experienced through this view we call self-view, right? It's happening to me. I'm feeling this. I like this. I don't like this. I want that. I want this to stop. So whatever we experience internally, externally, subtle, gross, it all is mediated with this 
In Buddhism, we call it wrong view, <laughs> self-view, right? Taking things personally. Isn't that true? That's ordinary, right? So if that's how it is for you, you're ordinary. Or as in Buddhism, you know, the way it gets translated often, you're a worldly person. You're a person without deep wisdom when we take things personally. And if you don't like that, right? And that, feel, that not liking it feels personal, that's proof that <laughs> you have self-view. Like if that feels insulting to somebody to be called a worldly person or uh, somebody who's deluded. Because an awakened person would just, whatever that hearing that is, and if that were to stimulate some reaction, some shame or something like that, all of that would be felt and seen in an impersonal way. Oh yeah, shame arises sometimes and it feels like this. Or, you know, insults come my way sometimes and it's like this. Because that's what wise view is. Wise view, it isn't a philosophical stance. Things are empty of self. A lot of people misinterpret the Buddhist teachings as some kind of philosophical stance that you should believe in. And then we have a church of not-self or non-self, you know, and it's like, before you come in, like, you don't believe in a self, do you? Because otherwise, you're not allowed. Only people who believe in not-self. <laughs> you know, it can get really weird like that. And it does when people misunderstand the Buddhist teachings. It's not so much about not-self, although you will hear that. It's really about what can I do to undermine that fixed habit of projecting self on what is actually just a natural process. So whatever this is, our experience being known, so we're, and in Buddhism, we're always talking about our subjective experience because that's all there is. There's this experience you and I are knowing. That's what we get with our lives. We get an experience being known. And it's always that way. I mean, not the experience isn't the same, of course. But that sums up in a very full, complete way what it means to be, you know, what we would say, a human being. It's experience being known. Right? Everyone understand that? We have our subjective experience, which is always something being known. If you're having a subjective experience that's not being known, it's not really a subjective experience. Right? We only have our life is only what is being known, being felt. That's what it is. And that thing we call experience being known is unfolding forever, always ceaselessly changing. And that's what it is to be human. And what an ignorant person does, a deluded person, an ordinary person like you and me, to some degree at least, what we're doing because of the force of habit, the conditioning process that created very strong habits, then we're in that process of something being known. Part of what's being known moment by moment by moment is the mediating effect of imagining that this is happening to me, a fixed sense of me, which implies a sense of separation 
from whatever I think is not me, life, nature, the rest of it. And that has real implications. That habit, that very deep, pervasive habit of wrong view, of fixed view, of self-view, has all kinds of implications. In fact, according to our experience and what the Buddha taught, all of the unwholesome qualities of mind arise out of that wrong view. So all of the different expressions of greediness, self-centeredness, all the different expressions of hate and fear, anxiety, anger, anger that, you know, in a destructive sense. We always have to say that because love and compassion can be quite fierce. But that doesn't mean, I wouldn't call that anger, but it can be quite loud and fierce, right? But it's really this, uh, it's coming for the benefit of everyone's well-being. Even if it's hurtful, right? Sometimes love, compassion hurts when we hear it or we give it out because it can be fierce. Like, no, this is not okay. This cannot stand. This has to change. So when we... Uh, drop when we're able to be free of self-view. Now, from us, from all of us ignorant people, you know that always like we're you're even we're even hearing this with our self-view. It's like, oh, that's interesting, you know. And uh, and if we really like want to get it, that's part of self-view. Like, I really want to get this not self stuff. <laughs> but that's okay. That's we have no choice but to begin with where we're at, which is this framing things in terms of me having experience, my experience, and the pain that I experience or the joy that I experience, and that is happening to me. And now we're getting this new information, and we're told to know it, and to keep it in mind, and to keep keeping it in mind. So as we're going, so whatever's happening in our set, in our daily life, we're practicing observing and framing and understanding it as a natural process. So even when I'm flipping out and acting out because of my emotional, psychological habits, conditioning, then to whatever degree there is present moment awareness, oh yeah, this is nature. It's natural for this person, when this arises, to act in this way. Doesn't mean it's not unskillful. Doesn't mean there won't be unwholesome or negative repercussions for my unskillful actions or words. It just means we can observe it as a natural process. Even really horrendous things like what's happening in the Middle East, whatever your particular perspective might be on that place. It's not an insult to understand violence and ignorance and whatever that is, oh yeah, this is nature. When all of that that's in motion there is in motion there, like the way it's in motion there, then you get this sort of thing unfolding. This is nature. And it doesn't prevent us from having a point of view like, hey, we should have a ceasefire, or no, we shouldn't have a ceasefire, or you know, United States should be involved, or United States shouldn't be involved, But what 
what we understand is whatever our participation is, sending money to Doctors Without Borders or, you know, doing this or doing that, whatever our participation is or isn't, our job is to see it as this is a natural process, to observe it as a natural process, not me being right, self-righteous, or me having doubt whether I'm right or not. I might have doubt, or I might be self-righteous, but that's seen as nature, part of the natural process. And when my friends disagree with my point of view, that's nature. Or everyone agrees with my point of view, that's nature. That's what we mean by hearing right view, getting it, keeping it in mind, keep keeping it in mind. Because intellectually, you know, like if it was a multiple, multiple choice question, a lot of us would get it right. Oh yeah, everything's a natural process, including the way I think and the way I perceive. I mean, most of us would agree with that intellectually. My perceptual process, the way I perceive and understand that is a, you know, that unfolded in this natural way through causes and conditions, and that's how I think. That's just nature. But we have to, it has to be worked with. This is why we call it practice. I have to keep keeping it in mind until it's sort of like something lines up. So that bit of information we got from the Buddhist teachings that we later memorized and then learned to keep in mind, all of a sudden, and you generally in a gradual shift, the way my mind is perceiving and being with, relating to internal and external experience, it shifts so that the internal framing, the level of understanding that we can't really see because it's so deeply conditioned into the mind, it shifts. It's like, We've been collecting data, and all of a sudden, the data overwhelms the self-view a little bit, and, and there's a shift, sudden. But that shift, generally, it's not easy for that shift to go back, because the shift moved in the direction of alignment with the way it is. So the, the reason why this pointing out we get from the Buddha, the Buddhist teachings are so potent, is his articulation, which is just concepts, of course, came out of a deep understanding of mind, a heart, that was in line with nature. Not in line with its cultural conditioning. Now, you don't have to believe that or not, but if you hear the teachings, and then you memorize the teachings enough. Okay, it's nature, it's a natural process. Even my self-centeredness is nature. Even my pattern of shame or my pattern of thinking I'm better than others or whatever psychological, emotional patterns, perceptual patterns we have, nature, not self. Just causes and conditions doing what causes and conditions do. These you know, multiple different forces that are at play, internally, externally. That's the very nature of my subjective, subjective experience. And when 
my subjective experience lines up, then it's like a settling in in a way that's surprising and it always has one taste, as the Buddha says, an unmistakable taste of freedom. It's the heart has become a little bit more aligned with the way it's always been. So there's a little less of the friction, the distorting friction of being out of alignment. Self-centeredness, any self-view is (laughs) friction. The word dukkha, which usually gets translated as suffering, actually comes from this term, you know, way back in uh, Pali language, the, the language is spoken around the time of the Buddha. You know, it means a wheel or axle that's out of true, like something's not really working here. You know, the cart doesn't really work very well because the axle, the wheel, isn't really in true. It's clunky. It's a lot of friction in the system. And that's really sums up our human experience. Like even if we're pretty privileged, have a good life, healthy, not being mistreated, even then life is clunky. There's a lot of friction, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty. Vulnerability feels personal. Uncertainty feels personal. All of what is ungovernable and unreliable, it feels personal doesn't it? Birth and death seems personal. (laughs) Mortality, right? It feels very personal. I've had this sort of sinus infection for almost two months now. Seems very personal. (laughs) I did my antibiotics, still didn't go away. It's like, oh, come on. (laughs) You know, it's like, who's out to get me? (laughs) It's like, Why am I even bothering trying to live in a healthy way? You know, it just doesn't work. It seems like not fair. It seems so personal. And we really feel this, like, especially at the beginning of a cold. You know, it's just like, how could you do this to me? (laughs) Or like when our friend or a dog or whatever is not treating us the way we want to be treated. It's like, come on, honey. It's me. (laughs) It just feels so personal. And remember, this process of hearing the teachings, remembering them, keep remembering them, using them to look, to relate to our experience. It's not about like pretending that things aren't personal. Remember that. It's not about pretending things aren't personal. It's about seeing that pattern of taking things personally as nature. All that you see in the people around you, all of the self-centered acting out, when somebody thinks they're better than you, or somebody is being really shy, or somebody is being really obnoxious, or whatever it is, oh yeah, that's nature. You know, whether you're seeing it here or you're seeing it there, it's just causes and conditions. And the same way we observe weather. Oh, yeah, it's November. It's supposed to be cold, (laughs) you know, like this. It's supposed to be like this. The leaves are supposed to fall. Somebody's supposed to rake them up. Although now we're getting a little wiser about that. I noticed there's some good articles about you really shouldn't rake your leaves. I like that. (laughs) 
You are supposed to mulch them, however, but still. <laughs> Just leave them in place. I don't know how good that is for the river, but it's good for my back. <laughs> So just to review these principles, the first one is to remember that this is a path of wisdom. And we need to, even if it feels obscure or you don't feel like you get it, that's okay. Just on the level of information, be able to replicate it in your mind. Like, is this nature? Is this a natural process, whatever I'm experiencing right now? Emotionally, visually, intellectually, is this all just a natural process unfolding? Does that understanding, that intellectual understanding, actually help me be a little bit more intimate, present with the way it already is? Like, does that understanding work better than any any other understanding that I might be projecting? And you have to start, you know, it will feel artificial because our ignorance feels like natural because we've been practicing it. Self-centeredness is the most natural feeling thing because it's our habit. But just because of our, it's our habit doesn't mean it's right. It just, and we'll start to notice the friction involved with that habit. Self-centered understanding always comes with tension. And part of our delusion is like, is this personal? And then we feel the friction, like it hurts. Oh yeah, it's personal because I feel the friction. See, that's how deluded we are. Of course this is personal because it hurts so much. But it hurts because we're taking things personally. Everything hurts. Every, even joy hurts. Oh, this is so good. And if we just go a little bit below the surface, we realize I'm really tight. It feels so good, but it's tight that it feels so good. I'm so happy, but we're, I'm tight. Interesting. Because the tightness comes because there's this idea that the good stuff is happening to me. And in a funny way, that's an abomination because it's not that way. It's just good stuff happening. And the projection that it's happening to me is extra and it's friction. It's not really that way. Good stuff happens and that's being known. Bad stuff happens and that's being known. Life just keeps tumbling on and on, the unfolding of experience. And it's not about believing it. It's about playing with this understanding and seeing if it lines up with your experience in a way that leads to these shifts, these insights that always have the flavor of freedom, always have the flavor of release. And that's just the heart, the heart that's understanding coming into alignment with the way it is. So in this way, you know, one way of understanding this whole process of awakening is coming into alignment with reality. And the process of ignorance and you know, the mess continuing to be the mess, the mess of human violence and ignorance and oppression and injustice and greed, hatred and delusion is staying out of alignment. And I like this because there is a natural 
it's subtle, but there's a natural gravitational force toward awakening. The reason we don't sense it is ignorance has its own feedback loop that I described a few moments ago. It's that we misunderstand suffering. We think suffering, the grip, the weight, the psychic weight and grip, right, of anxiety, let's say, we think it's absolute proof that this is personal. And what it should be proof for is curiosity, like, what is this? And whenever you're suffering, see if you can frame it as a natural process. Oh, yeah, when I take this thing this person said to me personally, then the body, mind, heart gets tight. When there's this, there's that. Without that, there's not this. That's a basic teaching from the Buddha called kind of the more subtle teaching, one of the most subtle teaching, uh, usually translated as something like uh, dependent co-arising. With the arising of this, there's the arising of that. When there's this, there's that. Not that, not arising of that, not the arising of this. When there's self-centeredness, there's the tension of self-centeredness. With the cessation of self-centeredness, there's a cessation of that grip. And it's all about coming into allegiance with this gravitational, this inner rightness of seeing everything as nature, not in terms of self and other, not in terms of separation. I mean, really, intellectually, doesn't it seem a little strange to constantly imagine that I'm outside of nature, like there's me that observes nature. Doesn't that seem a little like weird? <laughs> like, like nature, but there's me who's <laughs> aware of nature outside of it somehow, weirdly? See, it just doesn't make sense. I know that's, I mean, that's my subjective experience most of the time, so I totally get it, right? but it doesn't have to be that way. And it's really about letting nature be our teacher, not nature theoretically, but our subjective experience, because it's already the way that it is. We don't need different reality. We just need to learn to trust it. The hard part is that we have to abandon habit, and habit has momentum. That's why we have, you know, the point for... The reason for faith or confidence, like in the Buddhist teachings, is we need some kind of counterweight to the force of habit. That's why we have a building and a community and we sing a song at the beginning and we, you know, it's like, you know, we're not that into ritual here compared to, you know, the, the uh, societies, the cultures that have had Buddhism for a long time, you know, because that's what people do, you know, we develop rituals and forms. But we need something to remember, yeah, there's a different way, you know, and having a building you come to on Sunday morning or joining in on Zoom on Sunday morning, it can kind of create this, like, there's a different way for me to be living my life. I don't have to just keep doing the same all, same all and having the same results. So I'll leave it here. Uh, Just a couple of announcements. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. 
To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.